Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. But the most fascinating thing on the menus are all the different foods that they have, and it's things that we aren't familiar with today. I'm Delia Colon, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Break out the fine china and mind your manners. We're heading to the former Tampa Bay Hotel to learn how the wealthy wined and dined a century ago. Long before the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons, there was the Tampa Bay Hotel. Railroad giant Henry B. Plant founded the hotel, which operated from 1891 to 1932. And during that time, it served as a playground for the rich and famous. Today, the former Tampa Bay Hotel is home of the Henry B. Plant Museum on the University of Tampa campus. I stopped by the museum to learn who stayed at the old hotel, what they ate, and lessons their fancy schmancy meals can teach us today. In this conversation, we'll hear from three experts at the Henry B. Plant Museum. Melissa Sullabarger is curator of education. Susan Carter is curator and registrar. And Lindsay Hubin is the museum's interim director. Lindsay speaks first. Right now, we are in the museum office, and the office is located in what was originally the Tampa Bay Hotel. Um, This building operated as a hotel from 1891 all the way until 1932, so quite a long time. And the reason that we are so excited to have you here today is because we have this fabulous collection of menus, information about fine dining at the hotel, and the menus just have fantastic artwork in them and foods that we've never heard of, and and we get so excited to share this information with with whoever wants to hear it. I'm excited. It's very fancy, so we'll have to get into that. But who built the hotel and what was the significance? Can you paint a picture for me? Sure. So Henry Plant built the hotel. He actually developed the railroad into Tampa. So before Henry Plant got here, after the Civil War, there were maybe 760-ish people. So just a just a small fishing village. Henry Plant builds the railroad in, decides to build this incredible winter resort, really a playground for the community, for uh, wealthy travelers from the north primarily. And um, the population just explodes to 15,000 in a very short time, all because of this building. So I like to say that this is where the story of Tampa starts, with this building. You can't talk about Tampa's history without the Tampa Bay Hotel, without Henry Plant. And it is such a beautiful building. Susan, I want to bring you in. Uh, Just a minute ago, Lindsay and I put on our gloves like we're surgeons and um, brought some fine china over here. So were all the meals as fancy as requiring fine china? Oh, I think they were. This was like a five-star resort hotel. So, of course, they rolled out the red carpet to everyone that came and there were all kinds of, you know, courses and times for breakfast and lunch and dinner and teas. And it was very fancy. We consider it very fancy in our day and age anyway. Can you drop some names? Like who would have been staying here? (laughs) There are lots of famous people that would have stayed here. One of the most famous was Mrs. Edith Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's wife. 
and she was here during the days of the Spanish-American War in 1898. Other famous people, lots came during the Spanish-American War. We had Clara Barton, who founded the Red Cross. We also had Mrs. Grover Cleveland, Babe Ruth, John Philip Sousa, this is Lindsay. I mean, really, you name them, the biggest stars of the day came here. Um, Nellie Melba, Sarah Bernhardt, and then there were dignitaries that would come and there would be special events for, you know, a dinner with the vice president or a dinner with the first lady, something like that. So so this yes. really very much was high class. I know Susan and Melissa can talk about the different types of China that were used and their brands that that some of our listeners are probably still familiar with today. Let's talk about the China, but we'll get to the food. But first, we'll talk about the China. Describe it. It's it's just golden. It's glistening. The sunlight is hitting it. Tell me about this China. Yes. Well, the hotel actually had a lot of different sets of China, many different varieties from the United States, from Europe, all over the place. And one of the things that was actually relatively unique in the way that they used the China was that they would use a mixed service of China. They would have different patterns and different varieties that would come out together. So in some of the descriptions and accounts of meals, you hear all of these different varieties of China coming out with the different dishes. Huh. I thought that was like a modern, you know, <laughs> looking at stuff at the thrift store kind of thing. But they did that on purpose. They did. Um, a lot of the general aesthetic of the hotel um, comes across as fairly eclectic from our perspective today. And that's visible in the decor. If you come to visit the museum, you can absolutely see that all the way up and down the hallway. And it was also true in the way that they used the china. I'd just like to mention about the flatware on the tables. Um, the set that we have in front of us today, it's called King's Two. That's the pattern. And it was made by Gorham. And this was the fine silver that was used to uh, serve the guests for all their flatware, their forks and their knives and their spoons. And the nice thing was each fork was engraved on the handle, monogrammed, TBH. All three letters were over one another for the Tampa Bay Hotel. And that was on the end of the handle. And then in later years, they started using, um, as Mr. Plant died and city managers came in and ran the hotel, and the standards dropped slightly. So they their China <laughs> patterns got a little bit heavier and more durable for a hotel. And then the flatware changed and the flatware became international silver. So it was plated. And instead of having the TBH on the handle, they had it tight on and pressed onto the um, edges of the knives and the forks and the spoons. Tampa Bay Hotel. It was written out. And it's kind of fun today. Every now and then somebody comes and they donate a fork or a piece of flatware and they say, our family stole this from the hotel and we're giving it back. We want it to come back home. So that's how we've acquired a lot of things here for the museum. I love that. I would have probably been one of those people who took something. Like when people eat at the White House, they say they always try to take a little something. Okay, that's very cool. We got to talk about the food. You've got binders of menus here. We do. Um, it's fascinating. When I first started, I can remember two or three menus in a file folder that we found, and we started building the museum archives. Today, we can proudly say we have over 50 different menus from the Tampa Bay Hotel dating back to 1891 up till 1932 when the hotel ceased existence. But the most fascinating thing on the menus are all the different foods that they have, and it's things that we aren't familiar with today. 
Um, I recall a guest that visited the museum. They asked what they said, what is this on the menu? It's called saddle rocks. What in the world is would saddle rocks be? And I wasn't sure. So I looked it up and we figured out saddle rocks were large oysters and they served those at the hotel. And then there are all kinds of other things, and I've highlighted a few. There were pen money pickles. And pen money, there was a woman who um, came up with a pickle recipe, and they called it pen money pickles because ladies at the time, they would make money from sewing or taking laundry in or things, and they called it their pen money. And this one particular woman, give me one second, Mrs. E.G. Kidd, invented the recipe for pen money pickles. And she started it in her home in Richmond, Virginia in the 1860s. And it was one of the items that the Tampa Bay Hotel had on the menu, pen money pickles. And I had to look that up because I wasn't familiar with it. (laughs) But that was like the brand of pickles. And are they Um, just pickles? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of different pickled things on the menu too. It's not just Right. Not just pickled cucumbers. We're going to have pickled mangoes. Yeah, pickled, pickled mangoes. We found that one today. Pickled anything you can imagine. Lindsay, that's interesting. Would that have been uh, a main course, a palate cleanser? Well, if you take a look at one of the menus, so Susan is holding up a breakfast menu that has probably 50 different items on it. So oh. there are all these different courses. A lot of the lunches and dinners would have been 10-course meals. So you might have had pickles to go with I, I don't even know. Maybe pickles with your chicken course and then potatoes with your fish course. I... Right. They just had a variety of different things. This is a breakfast menu, and it's very different than our breakfast menus. It's not just eggs and bacon and sausage and things like that. They had a lot of meats. They had fishes, um, potatoes. They even had bone turkey with jelly, ribs of beef. This was all on their breakfast menu. Oyster stew. Game pie. Tenderloin steak, Salisbury steak, lamb chops. This is all for breakfast. Yes. Tongue, calf's liver, minced lamb. Oh, yeah, there's two different kinds of kidney on there. (laughs) That's too many for me. (laughs) Some of these dishes don't sound appetizing at all today, but this was popular back in the 1890s for the Tampa Bay Hotel. And this was a very special breakfast meal because this was for the very first season when it opened. This is just fascinating to me. And there are, there's bananas, bananas and oatmeal and things you would expect. But then a lot of things, ribs, who's eating beef ribs for breakfast? (laughs) I don't know. That is fascinating. Okay. So what else? This was breakfast. What's another sample menu? Well, on here, I um, highlighted eggplant and I highlighted the eggplant because within the collection, we have these things called stereo cards or stereoscopic views. And they made them and published them, and they were international views. They were views of buildings, architecture, famous places all over the world. Well, one of them showed the Tampa Bay Hotel front, east front of the hotel, which had a little garden. And within the garden, they had eggplants growing out in the front yard. So it made me think the hotel chef was just walking a few steps out the door and picking the eggplant to go in dishes. And then sure enough, it shows up here on the menu. This is the dinner menu. Uh, This is a dinner menu. And this one happens to be from 1913. And the stereo card that showed the eggplant was from the 1890s. So it makes me believe they probably had the little... Um, 
eggplants growing on the front lawn, you know, Mm -hmm. way back in the 1890s also, but they called it eggplant Tampa Bay. Uh, Okay. What else is on the dinner menu? Let's, let's read besides the pin money pickles. Let's read some of those. (laughs) I can't pronounce half these words. They're in French. They were so bougie. Boiled grouper sauce Norwegian? Stuffed spring chicken with giblet sauce, mashed potatoes, and green beans. That sounds like a school lunch. You know, beech nut guava (laughs) jelly, but but I might try that. Raisin cakes. I love that half the menu is desserts. (laughs) Strawberry shortcake. Exactly. That's very Tampa Bay. Mixed nuts, hickory nuts, cluster raisins, cream, and then there are some cheeses, crackers, steamed rice. Man, a lot of mayonnaise. A lot of mayonnaise, yeah. They love mayonnaise. Well, and I don't I don't think that that was necessarily mayonnaise the way we think of it today. I think it was maybe a little bit more of a catch-all for sauce. Melissa, mm-hmm. does that sound right to you? Yes, that's a, a term that's used a little more specifically nowadays than it has always historically been. Um, the ingredients in general are extremely interesting across all of these menus because some things, as you were noticing are exactly the kind of things you might expect to see on a menu in Tampa, Florida. You saw the strawberries, you saw the grouper. Um, But there's also some things that you might expect to see that you don't see at all. For example, on none of the menus are there any crab at all. And there's a lot less shrimp than there is lobster. Why is that? Well, we're not entirely sure. It could be the tastes of the people who were visiting the hotel, or it could be the experience of the people who were cooking in the kitchens, because many of them were coming down from up north. Support for the Zest podcast comes from Seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals, oils, oatmeal, energy bars, gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids, organic coffee, and more. Available in supermarkets, health food stores, or online at seitenbacher.com. Can you say more about the people who were cooking in the kitchens? Sure. So a few, this is Lindsay. Um, a few years ago, we actually were lucky enough to acquire three photos showing the kitchens and showing the people who worked in the kitchen. This is really incredible. Um, when we think about it, there, there have been more photos taken since January 1st of this year. This is now the middle of July. More photos taken this year than all of history beforehand. So to have a photo taken of yourself in the 1890s is really incredible. There might only be one picture of an individual. They might have never had their photo taken. So for us to acquire photos showing a workspace with the employees in it, so people who, given the attitudes of the day, would not have been seen as being particularly significant or important, this is really fascinating. And Susan, I believe on the backs of one of them, it may have had the names of the individuals in the photo. So we have been doing a lot more work researching the people who are working in the kitchens, the chefs. And I love that in these photos, there are women working in the kitchens. Again, kind of an unusual thing to have women working in that sort of industry. Hmm, that's a very good point. Here's the photograph. You oh, wow. The woman and how dressed up they are. This is Mr. Skinner. He was 21 years old when he started working at the hotel as the head steward. And so he would have been in charge of the kitchen help the chefs and hiring and firing them and so forth. Fascinating. And I do love that in this photo here that we're looking at, the woman is the only one not looking at the camera. She's the one who's still working. All the rest are mm. posing for the photo. That's Oh, that's such a good point. She's looking down. The others, there are one, two, three, four, five, six people in the photo, one of which is a woman, and she's like, look, I got to bake this bread. Yeah, I got stuff to do. Time is money. <laughs> um, can you talk about holiday menus? 
What would have been on a holiday menu? Okay, I'll give you a minute to shuffle through here. Okay, here's Happy New Year. Okay, here's a a Christmas. Oh, I see Christmas. Christmas. Let's do Christmas first and New Year's. So when I think of Christmas dinner, I think of maybe a ham or a turkey, um, some sides. Mm -hmm. Here's another Christmas one, too. Okay. These are just different years. Okay, so when I think of a... They have the ham and the turkey on there, I believe, but they have other things also. Um, this particular Christmas, they had essence of fowl in cup, and they had breast of chicken. They had Russian caribou. They had stuffed lamb chops. There's caribou on the menu That's in what Tampa, Florida. Right mm-hmm. here, Russian caribou saute a la... <laughs> what is essence essence of fowl essence of fowl this one i think i have looked up before if i'm remembering correctly it's like a broth so it's not as gross right. as it sounds right. okay so what else this is the christmas menu english plum pudding brandy sauce so stra- strawberry strawberry shortcake again <laughs> napoleons lots of fruit okay mm-hmm. fruit cake and nuts and cheeses so that's all kind of well, and, you know, we've got Similar. our boiled potatoes and our sweet potatoes, and there's cauliflower, mashed potatoes, peas, um, something called maraschino punch. That might be tasty. I could get with that. Yeah. Okay, and, and then here's another Christmas menu. Do we know about what year this is? This one is from? 1911 or 1911. Here it is, 1911 right oh, there. Oh, wow. Yeah. I cannot read half these words. <laughs> Should have studied French. Um, first of all, why, why is everything in French? Why is so much of the menu in French? Is that because people spoke French or they were just trying to look high class? It could be a little bit of both. Um, so Henry Plant would bring in chefs for the Tampa Bay Hotel that were very well known, that might have worked in big fancy hotels in New York or worked as personal chefs for people who were high up in the government, something like that. So having a celebrity chef is not a new thing. The chefs who were here at the Tampa Bay Hotel were some of those celebrity chefs. So if you're trying to impress the wealthy and powerful, are they going to be more impressed by, you know, grandma's ham or by, I'm going to pronounce this horribly, (laughs) cream pompadour au crouton souffle or consomme palestine? I have no idea what that is. Sweet gherkins. It's like something you would just grab off the shelf. (laughs) And celery. So um, Tampa Bay was, was one of the celery capitals of the world. So we see celery on a lot of our menus. And is it just plain celery? Sometimes. Sometimes it's stewed celery. Sometimes it comes with your pickle course with your olives and your gherkins. Melissa, do you want to say something about the <laughs> celery? This is a passion of yours. <laughs> She's nodding. Well, the I mean, as, as Lindsay's already said, celery was one of the major crops coming out of our region in that time period. It's not necessarily one that we associate with Tampa Bay nowadays, but celery was very much something that we were producing in this area, and it was very popular. Um, There are a lot of vegetables that were actually quite popular in this time period, especially if you could get them fresh. It's unusual in some parts of the country to be getting fresh vegetables because we don't have things like refrigerated trucks driving all over the country. So if you can come down to an area where they actually grow something, like which to us seems very ordinary celery, and actually have it fresh, that can be rather exciting. Okay, celery and exciting being used in the same <laughs> sentence on purpose for the first time in the history of the world. All right, let's look at this um, New Year menu from 1912, January 1st. Who wants to take a stab at pronouncing these words? Susan! <laughs> I 
see, okay, roast ribs, boiled new potatoes, mashed potatoes, summer squash. This all seems pretty normal. Peaches. Peaches Melba. Milady sauce. What's Milady sauce? I'm not certain. I'll have to look it up in the Mrs. <laughs> Cleveland's White House cookbook from 1886 that we have from the archives. So, okay, Mrs. Grover Cleveland, the White House cookbook. So people would be sort of inspired by whatever she had going on at the White House. Is that the idea? Right. They would have been. Okay. And I was going to go back to Peaches Melba because Nellie Melba stayed at the Tampa Bay Hotel and they named Peach Melba after Nellie Melba. Okay, I have heard of Peach Melba. So, Susan, who was Nellie Melba? Nellie Melba was an opera star. I think she was from Australia. I think she was. Yes, Nellie Melba was from Australia. This is Melissa now. Uh, She's remembered as being an incredible talent and an incredible prima donna. There are a lot of stories about her having significant demands. There are legends of her bathing in champagne. But one thing that we definitely know is true about her is that Peaches Melba is named for her. Very cool. Okay, so this again is the 1912 New Year's Day dinner menu. Were there different menus for different tiers of guests or was everyone who stayed here treated pretty much the same? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think it kind of brings up the breakfast room of the Tampa Bay Hotel. So we had a very fine dining room that could seat 800 people. There was a balcony at the top where musicians would play because, of course, you have to have live music during dinner. What kind of music? Um, You know, some of the menus actually have a list of pieces that would have been performed during dinner. So um, it might have been just, I'm imagining sort of lilting, you know, violins and just pretty drifting sound coming down over you while you're eating. Um, But if you were, say, a maid that came along with the family to take care of the children, you and the five-year-old twins are not going to be eating in the dining room. You're going to be across the hall in the breakfast room. Hmm. Yeah. Tell me more. (laughs) No, no. I love this because when we think about this time, there were all these people who were invisible, who were propping up the, the, the Melbas of the world. So tell me more about them. What would have, what would they have been eating Melissa in the breakfast room? That's an excellent question. I'm not sure if I know that one off the top of my head. Well, I know we can say that they would have been eating some similar foods. They might not have been prepared quite to the same level. They certainly wouldn't have been eating off of the same kind of china and things like that. The meals wouldn't have been quite as or quite as elaborate, maybe fewer courses, because also if you're sitting there with five-year-old twins, you don't want a 10-course a, a meal. You want to get out of there so that they can be romping around outside again. How long would a, a 10-course meal have taken? Are, Are they doing anything besides eating all day? (laughs) They're changing clothes because you can't wear the same dress to lunch that you wore to breakfast. Clearly. Um, What would they have been doing all day, Melissa? Well, there's an enormous amount of activities that were offered at the hotel. So if you were to go to breakfast, you could certainly rise, dress for breakfast, go to breakfast, after which you would want to most likely change again for whatever you were going to be doing in the morning, which could be... Anything ranging from tennis, golf, you might be going out hunting, because that was actually a major amusement in this era, uh, and also in this area, which if you look at our menus, you'll see a lot of game birds and a lot of fish as well, which some of them may have been brought back to the hotel by guests who were visiting and who went out hunting or fishing. Having done your morning activity, you may come back to the hotel and you might choose to have a lunch at that point. 
And then you would, of course, before lunch, need to have changed clothes because you would have gotten all sweaty doing your morning activities. After lunch, you would go and find what you were going to be doing for most of the evening. You might change clothes again, depending on what that is. You might go to see a show at the casino, which was not a gambling house, but a performance hall. Where was that? Uh, It was in between the hotel and the river. The building doesn't exist anymore today. It did unfortunately burn down, so we don't have it anymore. But there was a building in between the hotel and the river called the Tampa Bay Casino. It was a performance hall. It also did include card rooms. It may have been the place of a little bit of gambling. There was a bowling alley, and the major hall where all of the theatrical productions took place was also an indoor pool. The floor could be taken up and there was a pool underneath. So a visitor could certainly be visiting that area. Wow. I'm trying to imagine this because you pull up now and the museum, which was the hotel, is now the University of Tampa campus Mm -hmm. on the banks of the Hillsborough River in downtown Tampa. I'm trying to, to picture this casino. It seems like such a different era. Susan, overall, what would you say were the biggest differences between the way they dined back then and the way we dine today? It was a long, drawn-out affair, I would say. Um, you know, you got prepared and dressed to go to the dining room, and you took your time, and they had multiple courses, so you would be there and be entertained for hours. The grand dining room in the Tampa Bay Hotel was the largest room in the entire building. 800 people could be seated for dinner in the space. And there's a large dome at the top of the room. And around the dome, there's a beautiful balcony. And in the balcony, that's where they had musicians. So the musicians would be up there playing music. So you could have stayed there for hours and listened to the music. And a lot of the menus um, reflect, or some of the things that I've seen reflect that they ate dinner a lot later than we eat. They were eating well into the hours of the night, like eight or nine o'clock at night, and it would go on until midnight or so. I've seen that as well. I was just reading an etiquette guide before we sat down to have this conversation, and I found it. Now, this was for home meals, but I found a description dictating that uh, a fine dining occasion at home with guests should not run any later than 10.30 to 11 at night, unless, of course, there is an evening engagement following that. Evening engagement following. I'm in my sweatpants by like 9 p.m. Okay, I see, uh, Susan, you were flipping through your pages and you have some etiquette I rules. Did. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> this Let's is so go. fun. When Melissa brought up etiquette, I just thought about all the Victorian etiquette rules that were customary. And I'll just read off a few of them. Um, arrive for dinner promptly on time. This rule does not apply for a ball when it's considered fashionable to arrive up to one hour late. (laughs) A lady should never have more than one glass of champagne. One should never carry bonbons away from the table. (laughs) (laughs) And then we can't believe this one. A young lady never imbibes more than three glasses of wine at dinner. We're like, whoa, three glasses of wine. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So she could have three glasses of wine, but only one glass of champagne. Never wear gloves at the table unless your hands, for some special reason, are unfit to be seen. (laughs) What reason might that be? I have no No idea. idea. (laughs) Chewing gum is as vulgar as it is disgusting. Never explain at the table why certain foods do not agree with you. You just wish some of these rules applied to today. (laughs) Um, Do not attempt to speak with the mouth full. 
Never make a display when removing hair, insects, or other disagreeable things from your food. From your food. <laughs> from well, your food. <laughs> if that doesn't just say it all. And it just goes on and on. I mean, these are just so fun. I just pulled out the ones that apply to dining, but there are, you know, all kinds of other ones. Never interrupt or correct someone telling a story. And, you know, there's just tons of different ones. <laughs> what a different world. I mean, it was. I was eating on the way over here and then chewed gum <laughs> all in my car no special outfit no violin playing in the background well but you weren't wearing gloves so that was okay i was not wearing yeah. gloves yes and and everything agreed with yeah. me but um lindsay what do you think the way they ate says about that time overall i think it speaks to for the guests who are staying here, I think it speaks to the incredible luxury that they enjoyed, that they were able to have these elaborate meals daily, that they were able to spend this much time and effort dining. I mean, just, just to not have to, one, worry about where your food is crum coming from, worry about, do I have enough money to afford my food? I mean, all of these courses, these are, these are not inexpensive items to have this much fresh produce and the fruit, like Melissa was talking about, it's really incredible. So the menus kind of can tell two stories. One, we can talk about the guests and the people who enjoyed these foods and imagine what that might have been like. But then when you stop and think about all the work and all the effort and hundreds of people whose labor went into creating not just the food, but the menu too. I mean, the Christmas menu that we were looking at is beautifully decorated. It's illustrated in color. Again, a very rare thing for this time period. So the amount of work that went into it is just incredible. Um, and speaking of the artwork, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about my favorite. It's a Thanksgiving menu. Let's do it. <laughs> Susan knows which one I'm talking about. It's a Thanksgiving menu. And clearly the turkey has won the battle this year because the turkey is wearing a crown and a cape and the man is walking away with some bandages. <laughs> I love these menus. You mentioned the Christmas menu. It's got Santa with, with a sack of toys and, and Holly going around it. It looks like something you'd make on... Uh, like Microsoft Word, yeah, maybe. yeah. Print out at home. This is, you know, Pinterest. You're going to put this on your board. <laughs> Pinterest so <that> goals <laughs> for sure. Susan, what do you have here? I just pulled one of my favorite menus. This is the Fourth of July menu from 1898. And during the early days of the hotel, this is significant because the hotel wouldn't have been open for the 4th of July. The hotel was seasonal during Henry Plant's time and only open from around November or December until April. They would close it for the season because it gets so hot here in the summer. But anyway, they reopened the hotel for the Spanish-American War. And the officers and dignitaries stayed here. This was the U.S. Army headquarters. And so, of course, for the 4th of July, they had a famous menu here. Who's on the cover? And the cover is... It's a guy with a mustache. An impressive mustache. <laughs> <laughs> we can check. I think it's Dewey. So like a general yeah. from the war? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I no. just... But then all the, the whole menu, it, they have consomme Dewey, cream Hobson, baked snapper a la Sampson. So they named every course on the menu after someone who was associated with the war, all the dignitaries and the officers and generals and so forth, their names appear on the menu. Wow. Shoulder of lamb, asparagus on toast, Olympia pudding, apple pie. So that must have been refrigerated. Those apples did not grow here in Florida. No. Uh, royal milk and tea crackers. That's interesting. So this was during the war. That was right yeah, so before. So this was during yeah. the Spanish-American yeah. Wouldn't that be considered inappropriate today? 
to have someone fighting the war who was a higher up staying in this fancy hotel, eating all this amazing food. I don't know. I think that's poor form. And you know what? That wouldn't work today because we have smartphones. Exactly. So there would be a picture of some high up general eating in, I don't know, the The Ritz-Carlton while everyone else was eating their like MREs. Yeah. And it would be all over the media. Yeah, we would hope that wouldn't. (laughs) <laughs> okay, Melissa, I'm coming back to you. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you think the way they eat can teach us today? Well, I think one of the major takeaways is to consider, and this might seem an odd takeaway, but how our food gets to us. Because one of the major novelties of having all of these things here in Tampa, Florida, was that Tampa, Florida was not much of a town prior to the building of the hotels. So there were agricultural products that were local, but there were a lot of things that had to be brought here, whether it be by steamship or train. And a lot of the luxury here is the existence of all of these things and these highly skilled chefs all in the same place that all of these very wealthy people are coming to vacation. Nowadays, a lot of these things seem less luxurious or maybe downright unpleasant to us, but the, the transportation and the way that everything got to them really was the major novelty behind all of this. And I think we're quite aware today of how food transportation can really affect our day-to-day lives. That was Lindsay Hubin, Susan Carter, and Melissa Sullabarger of the Henry B. Plant Museum in Tampa. I'm Delia Cologne. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. We get help from Chandler Balcom, Mark Hayes, and Hannah Abdel-Majid. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media. 